Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Peter Kaufman, Program Manager in Strategic Initiatives and Resource Development at MIT Open Learning. His book, The New Enlightenment and the Fight to Free Knowledge, is out this year with Seven Stories Press. I know when I'm beat. You, my listeners, will be used by now to my five-minute intros, where my view on the subject matter of the book invites you, if not entices you, into the interview of the day. I like to make a thing that's interesting to me, interesting too to others. But listeners have been beat. Peter Kaufman's own eloquence cannot be made more eloquent and the interest Peter Kaufman generates in every line and every moment of his book The New Enlightenment is about as interesting as things get. So I doff my hat and give the word to Peter. Here is, as invitation and enticement, call it a trailer, here is some of what Peter writes in his book, The New Enlightenment. The forces that line up to shut down experiments in public service and educational content, often led by rights holders seeking to monetize that content before everything is available online, are strong. Years ago, They put the kibosh on an early majestic experiment at the BBC, and they have been busy before and since. Consortial efforts are required, because the world's strongest vested interests, whether Elsevier, Wiley, Disney, Sony, Warner, or any of a hundred others, are commercializing our knowledge, locking it away from us, exerting a powerful counterforce upon its natural trajectory into the commons. That force lasts longer than the lifetime of single human advocates, and when these nefarious and financially powerful corporations expand and merge and acquire one another, they benefit by receiving not only the assets and revenue of the companies they buy, but the accrued mandates of their institutional existences, their connections, their collective suppression strategies, the momentum behind which is considerable. When church and state working together, the church being the publisher or JSTOR of its day, neutralize or eliminate our greatest advocates and heroes, the only way we can combat their power is by aggressive and collective action. We have to launch a consortial effort to take back the public broadcasting efforts we seem to have abandoned writ large as a global society. A consortial effort to establish, produce, co-program a new web network, perhaps called Public Sphere Broadcasting, one devoted to the public wheel rather than to the bottom line. We might, this means we should, therefore want to start, this means we should start right away, a new national, even international commission of experts from science, media, technology, and the arts to explore the proper role for the university and sister knowledge institutions in our modern and broken information ecosystem. 
We have to start consciously collaborating with one another and producing, but immediately, for this new knowledge network. Signs of what is possible are evident everywhere. The Internet Archive, always a host and sponsor of such co-productions, is working with Wikipedia now, digitizing books so that links to sources in Wikipedia link all the way through to the books themselves and render up images and text on the cited pages. This takes the encyclopédie's vision and ambition to a whole new level. By producing for the network, we will make it happen and grow. Today, all these knowledge institutions we have are involved in education. Physical, online, public, K-8, through university level, high school level, advanced, you name it. But are we also in the healthcare business, the banking business, education policy, foreign policy, climate change? You bet we are. We are everywhere the monsterverse is. Is racial discrimination our topic? Gender discrimination? Abortion? Gun laws? Tax reform? You bet they are. So, listeners, you hear it for yourselves. This is the sort of flow and go, on topic and on fire, that I simply must bow to. Let's begin today's episode. Peter Kaufman and the New Enlightenment. Peter, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Daniel, thank you so much for having me. You um, begin us uh, in your book, The New Enlightenment, at the Old Enlightenment. You bring us back to 16th century England. You run us up to the 18th century in France. Um, and then at some point, we end up in the Soviet Union. What was, uh, let's say, the point of this historical background? If you might just give the listeners a, a quick overview there. Well... Uh, thanks for the question. First of all, it turns out I always end up in the former Soviet Union, no matter what I do, because uh, my father's side of the family uh, comes from Russia, and and um, I studied Russian and uh, worked, uh, you know, during the Cold War and the end of it, and in 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 and around that part of the world for a long time. Um, care about it, think about it a lot, and think about it and other uh, places and other times as models, cognates, comparisons for our own day. And so I remember hearing about, um, you know, William Tyndall. Uh, uh, when I was doing a lot of work in the UK, um, uh, r- running with a colleague, uh, a BBC alum, something called the Film and Sound Think Tank um, for a British government, governmental agency, thinking how to use more film and sound in education. And uh, the anniversary of the King James Bible came up, and it turned out, you know, this guy William Tyndall had translated uh, all of it uh, uh, before, you know, uh, King James came around. So I learned a bit more about him. And then in thinking about these travails that you just read uh, part of uh, today, and thank you for, <laughs> thank you for that, um, you know, I... I uh, I think back on, on the punishments that were, uh, you know, administered uh, rather se- rather severe ones to people like Tyndall, and then obviously the Encyclopédie in the in the seventeen hundreds um, is is a force very comparable to um, Wikipedia today. Yes, I, and it came. Uh out that uh, these punishments that you're talking about and also the dangers that the philosophes and the encyclopedie were 
obviously daily engaged in because they were speaking blasphemies and 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 and, and trying to bring down the powers that be in their as as you so nicely put it subtly couched somewhere in their articles um you you bring in there the what you call monsterverse so the the powers against enlightenment i suppose the dark powers maybe speaking of the uk they might just call them the baddies right that's right <laughs> uh, could could you maybe give us your inspiration for this this uh this term and this this phenomenon uh you know i can and and i can tell you that um you know, as, as the father of some children, I, I spent time watching them absorb, um, you know, the, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy and Harry Potter um, and Star Wars. And these are titanic, like, struggles against titanic forces of evil. There is no compromise, you know. Um and they're mesmerizing. Obviously, they're mesmerizing for children. And I'd like to believe that we prepare our children for fighting the monster verse, such as I define it, or such as any of us might define, you know, networks of, uh, you know, evil and and baddies, as you as you, as you put it. Like, um, you know, maybe we prepare ourselves for these through the fairy tales that we read early on, and especially these intricate stories of battling good versus evil. In my view, the monster versus is everyone through time, uh, you know, across space who um, have sought to kind of quash our access to knowledge, um, such as I believe you, you think about a, a lot more than, you know, I have and uh, well outside of this book, our access to knowledge uh, you know, uh, it's it's the most important thing. It's the it's really the dynamo of human progress, and um, a lot of bastards out there. Maybe bastards is the word <laughs> is the word I would use. Bastiverse. Bastiverse. <laughs> the, the, yeah. The, the the creatures of this um, monsterverse. I wonder if yeah. I know. I'm, I'm getting I'm getting inspired here. Sorry. You're into it. Um, I. I I am. I, I wonder if they are not, and this is just more of a philosophical question, so you can skip over it if you like, but I wonder if they're not also the the product of lack of enlightenment. Because wouldn't the, the enlightenment actually then, you know, spread knowledge all throughout the universe, if we might call it that then? And we would expect, you know, people actually being interested in improving things, uh, advancing knowledge, helping others, and so on. So it would seem that our, the, the worst products of a, a lack of a new enlightenment or any enlightenment would be precisely these creatures of the monsterverse. Does that sound I, something I, that you I, could that, buy into? That does sound good. You know, I have to go back now and re revise my text for the next, you know, printing. I, I, no, I think that's a, that's brilliant. I, I, I do think that the, um, that, you know, the absence of enlightenment um, produces more people who are support the absence of enlightenment. Because they must then somehow, well, yeah, I mean, they do materially profit from it or at least imagine they yeah. do i suppose then yeah mm -hmm. i mean that's the trick is to try to figure out how to can what is the evidence that that helps people understand that sharing knowledge is better than not sharing knowledge what are the verifiable pieces of information themselves that we can share with people who don't necessarily believe that it's in society's interest or 
what it, you know, uh, it's a tricky thing. We're dealing with all kinds of, um, you know, doubt about science and, and, and truth today when it comes to this pandemic we're in. Um, so it's a great, it's a great question. The hope that you offer, you, you, you bring hope very often into the book, very, very much up front. And I mean, we're in at the moment in you know, rather dark days uh, where we're in an epidemic where <laughs> we're at least having a change of regime in America. But I mean, there was an epidemic and a, a monsterverse regime. And you say that that is precisely the moment, though, when you can speak about freedoms and improvements. You even cite there um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau as someone who, you know, famously put that, you know, it's in the Bastille that you can talk about being free and able to move about as you like. Um, so w- what you bring us, though, is actually a very clear idea of what would need to be done in our new video culture, as you call it. And you can say a word about that in the same breath if you like, too. You bring us a five-point plan. Um, perhaps we could touch upon, upon a few of those points. But um, in run-up to that, what what is the video culture? Where have we? When did we get there? You know, uh, I have I have been aware for some time that the majority of efforts by um, the progressives who support open access or free culture or A two K access to knowledge or you know any number of um, um, sl- slogans, shibboleths, and the like have focused um, largely on um, scholarly articles or scientific, technical, medical articles, in some cases books, but almost in all cases text. And it's a weird thing because I think moving forward and even now, I think definitely now, the majority of people in, you know, the developed um, world, I guess, get their information um from sources other than uh, text, which is not to say sources other than words, and we can go on about that, but, you know, images and, and, and sound, um, uh, radio, television, the web. Um, so I think it's really important uh, that as we think about these struggles, um, you know, brings me back to the former Soviet Union again, as we think about these struggles, we include in our advocacy work. In fact, we feature um, the, you know, targeting the future of uh, free and open audiovisual communication. Over in the uh, Eastern Bloc, as the Berlin Wall was coming down, so-called velvet or bloodless revolutions all over Uh, those countries and within the former Soviet Union, uh, the main blood that was spilled, like it wasn't entirely bloodless, was spilled around these, during these battles for the control of the television towers in places like Moscow and and Bucharest and Vilnius. Um, It says something to me. Yeah, and it, it it's something that comes out very clearly back into the uh, Soviet um, context of the uh, Samizdat, and as you were calling it then, so a new self-publishing, not the sort of self-publishing that's going on now. And it's very convincing because you see in a culture like that, which had been in the Soviet bloc, where you know the merest p 
piece of information can be condemning or is, you know, something that was just what was missing for somebody's universe to come together and to realize, aha, yeah. no, this isn't the only reality there is. I mean, every yeah. piece of information, we can't tell which ones they will be. It is the fact that they move around freely that matters. And you come to this point here, I can't pronounce the name, unfortunately, but it's uh, Sosenstein, I oh, think. Yeah, yeah? okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he spoke of the mystical wisdom of a process in which information that is urgent somehow rises to the top. Samizdat knows what is what. And I just thought that that was, I mean, I think it speaks to what you're saying here about the violence to protect, defend, or to attack, you know, a mass communication center within that context of what we're talking about with this information and what knowledge is, is not surprising, right? I mean, that's exactly why Tyndall was brought to the stake and strangled at the same, set on fire and strangled uh, in chapter one. Like that is, that is exactly why, because there's some people who don't want you to know what is what, you know, because if you know what is what, you know what is what. And sometimes what <laughs> includes, and sometimes what includes, you know, who is who and who is what, what is when, and, you know, all these other things. So, yeah. Um, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, and it's that it's that principle that it needs to be set up as something that's just naturally free. I mean, you say a lot about how information um, you make some very interesting comparisons there. Information has its own laws. Uh, I mean, there's the well-known phrase you know, that it wants to be free, but you even bring it into a sort of Newtonian context where it's emotion. It's uh, something that you know we can't contain in a way, and that's precisely what's being shown up in the video culture of today or the radio culture of yore, where it's just the fact that it needs to move freely, not necessarily what the information itself is. That's that's exactly right. I mean, I you know, and part of the connection to the enlightenment, um, the original enlightenment, and what I'm calling for, you know. Uh, feebly or strongly, you you decide in this in this readers decide listeners in in this in this book is is you know it's motivated by that connection between the old and the new. Newton Newton figured out his his laws of motion when he was at home um, from the university, which had shut because of the plague. By the way, so you know who knows what will come out of this this plague that we're in, but. Uh, Newton figured out that, you know, these, these are laws of the universe, or at least of Earth, that the, that the uh, you know, apple will fall from the tree, right, because of gravity. And so he charted that and wrote formulas down. And it, almost exactly at the same time as he was doing that, the first copyright laws were being written, uh, also in England, and, and um, in the early 1700s. And this was, these were laws that were stipulating like it was part of the original copyright vision if you know it's to be commended for anything it's this that that the um that the uh um you know public domain was the ultimate objective of a human intellectual creation that you know i could write something and you could have the license to publish it and you could sublicense the right for someone else to do an audiobook by the way, thanks for your reading. I hope that someone, you know, hears it and gets, you know, boy, would it be nice for you to do the audio version <laughs> of my book. But, uh, you know, and, and and the licenses go on and on, but when they're all done or when they're 
when they should be done, you know, uh, that work goes into like the, you know, the public equivalent of the old grazing commons where you could take your sheep to, to, to eat the grass. Like it, it's part of society uh, and, you know, freely accessible. And I just want to accelerate that process a little bit and respect that, that vision that, uh, you know, Queen Anne's lawyers uh, said about articulating. Yeah, and that seems to be something that has been forgotten with many of the new copyright laws or intellectual property laws and so on. But w w what comes up in the book precisely in this area of, you know, the information ends up in the commons. It, it, it's naturally, its natural trajectory is towards the commons, as, as you say at yeah. one point. Makes, makes me think of uh, Jonas Salk, uh, the one of uh, polio vaccine fame, um, who in the 1950s was, in a sense, a, very much a representative of you know, biomedical research. And I don't think anyone would think that way today when he was asked, would he be patenting, patenting his uh, discovery? He replies, no, I might as well patent the sun. And, and to me, that would not be the response today by anyone. I, I talk about in this book, the physics of intellectual property in the, in that, in that light. It's the, it's like one of the few, you know, <laughs> phrases that I've come to like, uh, in, 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 in this volume. And, um, Salk is so relevant today because people have said, if, you know, we didn't have a massive information, disinformation, disorder, whatever, truth decay going on around the vaccine, you know, or if the equivalent kind of, you know, refusals and ignorance had been prevalent during polio, we'd still have polio uh, in this country today. And, you know, a friend of mine in Brooklyn, uh, who's done some work on this, reminds me that, like, Polio struck a struck a chord of fear in this nation like nothing else, almost m larger than the 1918 influenza epidemic. People were burning their couches in the street after someone had, you know, would visit your house. You drag your couch out and set it on fire because you were terrified that you would, you know, contract this fatal or potentially fatal. Um, disease. So Salk, it's, it's fascinating to think of Salk in this moment. Um, it's a, it, it's, it's just a great point and we really should unpack it. We should do 20 more of these, 20 more of these conversations. Great. Yeah. I, I um, do want to get uh, back briefly though, to the, the five point plan where I said, yeah, you get quite specific in the hope that you give and you say there is a way forward in our video culture. Um, real quick, uh, the points are to define our rights at the moment, um, to build new knowledge commons, to construct new networks of facts and evidence. Number four, to empower the archives at the heart of all knowledge, which is a very good point. And then lastly, where you end off the Book, defining our new moment and the process for knowledge institutions to act together. Um, could you maybe pick up any one of those? I think we've probably said enough about the point of defining our rights and, and, and building the commons, but what about uh, maybe the archive? That, that, that's a very interesting uh, point there. Uh, you know, um, it's extraordinary to think how little attention archives get 
in the modern world. And, you know, in my interactions, for example, with the greatest philanthropies, you know, who support education and who support media, uh, including public media, including online free, ed, you know, open educational resources, how little attention is paid to, you know, um, where all this stuff is kept and how. And, you know, I go on in the book about the etymology of the word archive and the connection it has to, you know, um, power um, um, in the original Greek, you know, try, trying to imitate William Tyndall and some of his some of his knowledge of seven languages. You know, I just I spent time with one Greek word for about a page, but um, it is um, it is it is a direct connect. Like, who controls the archives? Controls everything in in many ways. You know the the Trump era. Uh, you know his name had to come up. You were kind not to bring it up for twenty four minutes, but uh, um, <laughs> Trump, the Trump era. You know will be told largely through historians working with audiovisual communication, because the guy didn't you know write a lick and and uh, he communicated via Twitter and on television. All these all these extraordinary lies are documented there. But what if we don't have access to that? Um, can we really write the history or produce the history of that, uh, that four years? Um, uh, you know, n- n- no. Uh, so we have to figure out ways of uh, empowering, protecting the art, and specifically rules around it that allow for not private companies to control, um, you know, our our, our history, but, and our, by extension, our future, but like, um, you know, all of us, society to control it. And that's why there's so many interesting things to say about places like, um, the internet archive and, uh, and Wikipedia. And what I find, uh, quite enlightening in that discussion that you give of archives is that, you take the example of the eyes on the prize, so the documentary about the civil rights movement, and how much work had to be put into um, sort of deciding points of copyright, because video copyright is just a massively complex and complicated thing. Uh, there's so many uh, players involved and so many people who need to be notified. And you say, if I'm getting it right, you say, we need to turn that process on its head. We need to be clear from the beginning. We can really, with very little effort legally, um, set up a film that would, despite all of that complexity, end up in the commons by a natural course. But it needs to be decided and, and, and written down from the beginning that way. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I've done work um, a lot, you know, a lot of my, a lot of the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years with video. And, and that's another reason to focus on video, by the way, because, or not by the way, because, um, you know, when we produce some kind of book, like if we do an anthology, you know, we are mired in so many ridiculous entanglements with the 600 years of the way print culture has developed, um, um, you know, at, at, I guess at the direction often of private interests that the distance between the ultimate landing place, that commons that 
is, you know, inherent in Queen Anne's first copyright law and, and, and where stuff, you know, travels immediately after it shoots out of your pen or my pen or, you know, the, the, the printing plants, uh, that, uh, do the books that we read. It's a, it's a long distance. So yeah, video, um, is super important, super potentially complicated because of rights. We've also allowed to, you know, dominate these discussions in, in music um, unbelievable in, in, even in news, news footage. Um, so yeah, we should really think about, you know, producing from the get go, um, these kinds of, these kinds of freely licensable works. And when they're funded also at the beginning, they should be funded with that stipulation, much as, you know, we're finally realizing with scientific, uh, research and publishing today, uh, it's critical to be able to share, use, reuse the stuff that if you're working on genome stuff, or if you're working on, you know, epidemiology, guess what? Today, super important that we all have access to it. Um, one of the things that you really uncover is, is the pattern that occurs when people are trying to bring things uh, to the public, an enlightenment-type educational process. You go into the wonderful history of visual education, which I hadn't really even been very familiar with, and uh, you draw up, um, so from the 1920s to the 1930s, how mass media and democracy uh, play out and then essentially democracy loses uh, a wonderful book which i'm certainly going to be getting my hands on apparently by um robert mcchesney yes that's yeah. the name robert mcchesney which tells that story and then it becomes normalcy that we expect commercials and commercialization of our television or our radio the 1960s the carnegie commission where public broadcasting was established now i know why it's wgbh <laughs> <laughs> which I'm thankful to you for. Um, the point that you make there, though, is that we have a recurrent pattern, and it is again and again that we lose to a commercial marketplace. And instead of actually bringing to the public something that would be enlightening. Yeah, I mean... And it's a problem, but there are ways of drawing inspiration just from the way we can walk around and live. I've, I've talked recently because of transactions I've witnessed around online education it's about Central Park in New York where I grew up. And, you know, Central Park sits, I don't know on how many acres, um, but it's right there in the heart of New York. That real estate is probably worth Daniel, I don't know, trillions of dollars. You know what I mean? Like, um, seriously, that's in the heart of New York. But you know what? People have figured out. They said, we need this park here, and we're not going to let it go, and we're going to find ways of supporting it and keeping it here, and we're not going to sell off this park to developers. Okay, we might put a restaurant in it. Okay. But the entire park stays as it was like 156, whenever it was 60 years ago. So I think there are ways of reminding ourselves that when we commit to an idea, you know, our national parks are another example, but I can't speak about them with the same passion as I can about Central Park or, you know, um, 
when we commit to an idea, we can actually execute on it and keep it and preserve it and and uh, develop it and nourish it. Um, so I think we need to uh, re- re- revisit, you know, our kind of our kind of public domain for for the intellect. Well, uh, Peter, you've been uh, very generous with your time. I, I do have one last question, which really follows up very closely on uh, your point there about Central Park and committing to an idea. Your book works very much as a call to action. It's time now, you remind us again and again to you know, to embrace a new enlightenment and to, then to actually do something for it. It's unfortunately the case, though, now that it seems so easy for very many people to do very little. And I wonder what it is that you could sort of pinpoint or put your finger on as being the real key mover that needs to um, happen. You know, what is it that's going to actually get people engaged in something like this? I, you know, uh, it's a great question. Damn you for asking it. No, it's a great question. Um I would tie it to that fifth point in that like five point agenda that you um, read out just a moment ago, I guess, as part of your previous question. And it would be, um, you know, to take a broad look, uh, not everybody will do everything and most people won't do anything, but take a broad look at like um, our knowledge institutions Define them as broadly as we can. Like, what, what, what is a knowledge? Obviously, a university like the one I work in or, or the, you know. Um, but there are museums, there are libraries, there are archives, there are public broadcasting institutions, there are historical societies and other things. And just, and just figure out ways to encourage all of these institutions, which have so many stakeholders, so many members, so many funders, so many visitors and readers and, uh, you know, people who absorb things emanating from these institutions. Figure out some way for these, all these institutions to kind of publish more, to publish more onto the web, because as someone put it, it's a quotation that, you know, damn it, came, came to, to me after I, after I had sent this book to press the, uh, uh, the, the, the truth is paywalled, but the lies are free kind of thing. Um, and you know, if these knowledge institutions, such as the one I'm in can band together, can commit in principle and practice to publishing more, to linking to each other's content, to citing and sourcing each other's work, we'll be a much stronger world, we'll be a much stronger society, and we'll be a little bit better equipped the next time, um, you know, uh, the baddies, the gladiators from the, uh, from the MonsterVerse manage to uh, gain access to the most powerful offices in the land. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that is Peter Kaufman, and his book, The New Enlightenment and the Fight to Free Knowledge, is out with Seven Stories Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Peter. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Goodbye, Dan. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.